Well, one uh, particular kind of scene that filmmakers love to include in their movies is the training montage. So you may know the training montage is a series of shots in which the main character uh, strains and toils and agonizes to prepare for some great feat, uh, usually a fight or an athletic contest of some sorts. So in the classic boxing movie, Rocky, right, there's the part where Sylvester Stallone jogs around Philadelphia and does one-arm push-ups and really beats up on some dead cows and then climbs the famous Rocky Steps and shakes his arms in the air. Or in The Matrix, uh, there's the scene where Morpheus teaches Neo Kung Fu. Or in The Dark Knight Rises, right, the Batman movie, there's the scene where Bruce Wayne does sit-ups in his jail cell in the bottom of that hole so he can climb out and beat uh, Bane. Or in Kung Fu Panda uh, with Jack Black, there's the scene where the little red panda trains the big white panda uh, to, to fight by not letting him eat, right? They fight with the chopsticks. He won't let him have the dumpling. If you haven't seen any of those movies, I'm sorry, that's, that's the best I can do this morning. Anyways, that's the training montage, right? The heart of the training montage is that the main character is captured by a goal or by a vision. And for the sake of that goal, for the sake of that vision, uh, he or she is willing to endure great difficulty, whether it's going the distance with Apollo Creed or liberating humanity from the machines or beating Tai Lung the tiger, I think one of the reasons that the training montage is an effective storytelling device is because it's a dramatized version of the toil that we experience in our more ordinary lives. We too often endure hard toil because we are captured by a larger vision or a goal, even if it's a little less glamorous than in the movies. We toil to make a living because we love and want to provide for our families. We toil to serve with excellence in our jobs because we want to make a positive contribution. We toil hard to raise our children because we love them, because we want them to flourish. We toil for political causes or objectives that we deem worthy. We toil at the gym for a variety of health benefits. Some students toil in their studies to learn well uh, and to make good grades and prepare for a career. So the training montage is a fun movie trope because it's a dramatic, a larger-than-life picture of toil motivated by a greater vision or goal. And because that resonates Uh, With us, we're inspired by the grit and endurance of our heroes uh, to strive in our own callings. Well, in our scripture passage this morning from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians, we find that the Apostle Paul is telling the believers at Colossae all about his toil. Paul isn't so much training or preparing for something as he is actively struggling in pursuit of of a particular goal. And as Paul tells the Colossians about his toil, uh, he tells them about the vision or the goal that captures him and leads him to toil and even to suffer as he does. So here is my best shot at a one-sentence summary of our Bible passage. You ready? Here it is. Paul 
toils joyfully to proclaim God's mystery, Christ, for the church's maturity. All right, that's a mouthful. Let me say it again. Paul toils joyfully to proclaim God's mystery, which is Christ, for the church's maturity. So three points this morning. First, Paul's toil. A second, God's mystery. And third, uh, the church's maturity. First point, Paul's toil. What does Paul tell us about his toil uh, in this passage? Look with me at verse 24. Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. We'll say more about what Paul's toil looks like in just a moment. Uh, But first, did you catch that phrase that Paul uses to describe his toil there in verse 24? Paul says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Right? That sounds really strange to us, right? It almost sounds like Paul is saying, you know, Jesus didn't suffer quite enough on the cross, so I'm finishing the job uh, through my own sufferings to atone for the sins of the world. But for at least two reasons, that cannot possibly be what Paul means by these words. First, Paul himself directly contradicts this idea in his letter to the Colossians and throughout his writings. Remember, the passage that we looked at just last week says that Jesus' death in the body of Jesus' flesh by his death, he has completely reconciled all of God's people to himself. Right As Jesus died on the cross, he didn't say, now it's your turn. He didn't say, here's a handoff. Right? He said, it is finished. Sometimes we sing, nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And the second reason that Paul can't mean that he's adding to Christ's atoning work is actually that that word afflictions that Paul uses in in verse 24, that specific word never gets used to describe Christ's dying on the cross. So Paul doesn't mean that he's adding to Jesus' atoning work. Well, what does he mean, though, uh, when he says that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Well, I think Paul's reminding us that the path of Jesus shapes the path of his people. The path of Jesus shapes the path of his people. And what is the path that Jesus walked, predicted throughout the scriptures, as our sister Suzanne read to us from 1 Peter? It's a path first of suffering and then of glory. A path first of humiliation and then of exaltation. First of toil and then of reward. Self-sacrificial love and then life shared with the beloved. So, because that's Jesus' path, Paul's path, the church's path, Franconia Baptist Church, our path, is to be marked by the same pattern. First, suffering, uh, and then glory. And in that way, we share in the afflictions of Christ. Jesus and Jesus alone suffered to atone for sin in his great love for his people. And those for whom Jesus atones, those are called to follow him in suffering, 
in love for him and in love for his people. The way Paul talks about it here seems to highlight uh, that God has sovereignly determined exactly how much his people should suffer, right? Paul says he's filling up what is lacking or completed his own allotted portion in the suffering that belongs to God's people because they follow a suffering Christ. And so the ultimate cause of Paul's toil or the suffering component of his toil is that he's following a Jesus who toiled and suffered himself. So what does Paul's toil look like more concretely? What does it consist in? Well, from these verses, we gather that Paul's toil consists both in hard work uh, and in hardship. So first, Paul is doing a lot of hard work in this passage. Paul is engaged in the hard work of proclaiming Jesus to everyone that he possibly can. In verse 25, Paul writes that he became a minister of the church according to the stewardship of God from God that was given to him for the Colossians. Why? Verse 25, to make known, I'm sorry, to make the word of God fully known. Paul is engaged in the work of making God's word known. There in verse 28, Paul writes, Him, or Jesus, we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Right? If you've ever taught anything wisely with all wisdom, you know that, that it can take hard work uh, to teach. And Paul was a non-stop teacher, proclaimer, counselor, warner about Jesus in public, in private, in formal settings, in informal settings, to believers, to unbelievers. And Paul describes this as his toil, as his hard work. There in verse 29, he uses the word toil, the word struggle, the word work, the word energy. We know also from Colossians that Paul is doing the hard work of prayer. Paul's already said in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, that he prays ceaselessly for the Colossians. There's a word in our passage that gets translated twice as struggle. And that same word gets used in Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, when Paul tells the Colossians that Epaphras is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So, brothers and sisters, be encouraged. If you find that it's hard toil to be engaged in extended prayer, you're not alone. Paul did too. Paul toiled in prayer for the Colossians. And from his letters, we know he toiled in prayer for the, the health of numerous other churches, many of whom he had never even met. So Paul's toil includes his teaching, his prayer. At various seasons in his ministry, Paul's toil would have included uh, bivocational by, by work, right? At, Paul, at times, Paul supported himself as a tent maker while he was a full-time missionary and apostle, right? Sometimes Paul's toil included legitimate work done just to pay the bills, so to speak. That, included, that was included in Paul's toil, Paul's toil would have included traveling and corresponding extensively. Scholars believe Paul would have traveled 10,000 miles on foot in the first century throughout his ministry. 
Paul wrote more letters than we even have of his in the New Testament. Can't tell you how many times I thought, man, I should write so-and-so a letter. And I don't quite do it because it's actually really hard to write a thoughtful letter. Paul is toiling to travel and to communicate extensively with Christians everywhere. It would have been, speaking of his travels, it would have been laborious and expensive and dangerous for him to travel as much as he did. So Paul's toil includes this hard work that he's engaged in doing. And it doesn't just include his hard work, it also includes his hardships, as we see. There in verse 24, we already saw Paul use those two words, sufferings uh, and afflictions. Right at the, at the time that Paul writes this letter to the Colossians, he's not traveling, he's locked up in a jail cell uh, for preaching Jesus. Uh, Paul didn't just labor to teach faithfully, uh, he was violently opposed for doing that. He was even physically abused for doing that. Eventually, he was killed, as by the way are many of our brothers and sisters around the world today. Uh, Paul tells us in his second letter to the Corinthians that he faced, quote, danger from robbers, danger from his own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, toil and hardship, many a sleepless night, hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. You see, the path that Jesus had called Paul to walk was fraught with many dangers, toils, and snares. And you notice some of these hardships are sort of the direct result of Paul being a minister of the gospel, right? Persecution because he's preaching. But some of Paul's hardships are just the sufferings of life, right? Paul talks about danger from robbers, right? Robbers rob everybody. Paul talks about sleepless nights. That's a, a common suffering, not unique to Christians, But in God's providence, that was what God called Paul to walk through. Some of his hardships included just the sufferings of life. His toil was characterized both by hard work and hardship uh, under God's providence. So surely Paul is miserable, right? Pouring himself out in exhausting work, violently opposed, and totally misunderstood by everyone around him many around him, currently sitting in a Roman jail cell. Surely Paul is grumbling about his toil here. Well, no, look at how Paul bookends this passage. Chapter 1, verse 24, our first verse, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Look at the last verse, chapter 2, verse 5. He says, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Friends, Paul here holds out the hope that because Christians suffer with Jesus and for Jesus in obedience to Jesus as those empowered by Jesus, our experience of toil and suffering can be marked by joy. Paul finds meaning in his suffering because he knows that it's part of God's good plan. Paul finds comfort in his suffering because he suffers as one united to Jesus. They are the afflictions of Christ. 
Paul finds joy to persevere in his suffering as he draws strength from his living relationship with the living Christ. Look at chapter 1, verse 29. Paul writes, For this I toil, because I'm so hardcore. No, no, no. He says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Right? Paul draws strength for his toil from Jesus Christ who works in him. I think we can infer that Paul was walking closely with Jesus in the midst of his toil. So Christian, are you suffering? Are you burdened by the hard work to which God has called you? Whatever that work might look like. Are you weighed down by the many hardships that this life brings? Brother, sister, view your suffering through this lens. You belong to Jesus Christ who loved you and gave himself for you. God has called you to suffer because that's the path that Jesus walked. Right? God has determined to make you forever like Jesus through your sufferings. God has determined to draw you near to himself through your sufferings. Sometimes God calls us to embrace suffering in order to serve the spiritual good of others, like Jesus served us. So listen, the Bible never pretends that suffering is peaches and cream, right? The Bible models humble transparency before God about how things hurt us. Just read the Psalms. They are full of raw lament. But the Bible teaches that those who belong to Jesus can rejoice, as Paul does, even in their great sufferings. Paul toils both in hard work and in hardship. uh, And because Jesus Christ is at the center of Paul's toil, he's able to toil joyfully. So that's our first point, Paul's toil. Our second and third points really shed more light on the motive or the goal of Paul's toil. So in in order to understand Paul's joyful toil more fully, Uh, We need to see what Paul writes about our second point, God's mystery. Second point, God's mystery. Uh, Right there at the end of verse 25, uh, you can see that Paul says that he is toiling, quote, to make the word of God fully known. And then look what Paul says about the word of God in the very next verse. Look with me at verse 26. Uh, Paul calls the word of God in verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. Verse 27, to them, to God's New Testament people, the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In quite a few of Paul's letters, actually, Paul often uses that word mystery, to describe something, but he doesn't really use it in exactly the same way that we do, right? We use the word mystery uh, to describe something that's confusing sometimes, like the mystery of how one sock from each pair always disappears in the dryer. It is mysterious, as we say. Yes, Jared is nodding. It happens to me too. If you have any insight into this mystery, uh, let me know. But that is not what Paul means as 
by the word mystery. He's not just talking about something confusing. For Paul, a mystery is something hidden in the Old Testament and revealed in Jesus. A mystery is something hidden in the Old Testament, but now revealed in Jesus. That's what Paul means by a mystery. A mystery is a clear New Testament fulfillment of a shadowy Old Testament type or promise or plan. So think about it like this. Think about it in terms of the Old Testament imagery we've seen in Colossians so far. So if you only had the Old Testament... I know that this is hard to imagine having read the New Testament, but just imagine for a moment that you only had the writings of the Old Testament. Could you tell that God's plan was for his image bearers to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with his glory? Yes, you could. Absolutely. That's clear in the first chapter of the Bible. Uh, But how exactly that was going to happen was a little foggy by the end of the Old Testament, because Adam was supposed to do that, uh, but that didn't work out. And then Israel was supposed to do that, uh, but that didn't go so well either. But Paul is saying that now that Jesus has come, the mystery has been revealed. The world is going to be filled with God's image bearers, not through reproduction, but through the spread of the gospel, which is fruitful and multiplies all over the world so that people are conformed to the image of Jesus marred by sin. Here's another example of a mystery. If you only had the Old Testament, could you prove that there was going to be a future bodily resurrection from the dead? I think you could. There's one particularly clear verse there in Daniel chapter 12. But the details about the resurrection in the Old Testament are exceedingly scarce. Because we don't meet anybody except really for Enoch and Elijah who escapes death. God certainly promises to his people in the Old Testament some kind of life that endures past death. Psalm 23 ends, David saying, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And we certainly see God's people hoping in the afterlife. Job, I know that my Redeemer lives and afterward I'll see God on the earth. But how God is going to bring this resurrection to pass was a bit of a mystery. It was hidden. But now that Jesus has come and risen bodily from the dead in new creation glorified life, and now that he pours that life out on his people through his spirit, and now that he's promised that just as he died and rose, so everybody who's united to him is going to, after dying, rise on the last day. Well, the apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy 1 that Jesus has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Jesus has revealed the mystery of the resurrection. One more. Uh, Paul loves to mention this one, especially when he talks about mystery. If you read the parallel passage to our passage in the book of Ephesians, this is really what Paul, I believe, is talking about in Ephesians chapter 3. If you only had the Old Testament, could you prove that the Gentiles would be included in the kingdom of God? Well, you could certainly prove that every nation would be blessed in Abraham's seed, right? That's clear in Genesis 12. But from the Old Testament, it's not really clear how that's going to happen. 
Is everyone going to have to become Jewish or to be ruled by the Jewish nation? Does everyone have to get circumcised and join the Old Testament covenant community? Well, when Jesus, the true Israel, this one circumcised Israelite fulfills all of God's law and takes all of the curse for all of the disobedience of all all people who would ever trust in him, then the mystery is revealed. Right? God's people is no longer a nation of one ethnicity. It's people from every nation who trust in Jesus, concealed in the Old Testament, now revealed in Jesus. So Paul says that the aim or the goal of his toil, the content of his teaching ministry is to announce God's mystery. Paul's job description is to make known what was hidden in the Old Testament and now revealed in Jesus. And just notice, uh, the heart of the mystery is Jesus himself. It is the person, Jesus, that Paul is busy proclaiming. Verse 27, Paul says, To them, to the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is... Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what does Paul toil to proclaim? Does he toil to proclaim a worldview or a code of morality or a set of doctrines or a plan for escaping hell? Well, in in one sense, absolutely, he toils to proclaim all these things. But what is the beating heart of what Paul is busy preaching? It's right there in verse 28. Him we proclaim, right? The heart of what Paul is preaching is the person, Jesus. Paul's saying, my job description is to announce this mystery hidden in the Old Testament, revealed in the New Testament, and that mystery is, centers on, consists in the person, Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean that Paul preached a simplistic or shallow message because uh, look at what Paul says about God's mystery, which is Jesus, there in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. There at the end of verse 2, you you see that Paul says God's mystery, which is Christ. Look what he says about Christ in verse 3. He says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Right? The heart of Paul's preaching is the person of Jesus. But it's not a simple message because in the person Jesus are hidden or stored up all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Listen, you can learn a lot of true things without knowing Jesus. But you cannot ultimately understand anything unless you know Jesus. You can learn quite a lot of true things about the stars, about their size, about their composition, about their orbits from the scientists. But you won't begin to understand the stars unless you know the one whose finger work they are, whose glory they were designed to proclaim. You can learn a lot of true and helpful things about how to be healthy Uh, and happy in mind and body from the doctors and the sages. Uh, But you won't know what your life, your health, your happiness is for, or how to keep that gig going for more than about 80 years, 
unless you know the preeminent Christ. Right? You can have the most intellectually robust worldview, the most orthodox doctrine. You can know all the right answers on the ethics test. And all of those things are very important for disciples of Jesus. I'm not saying they're not important. But unless you have these things as the fruit of your knowledge of the person, Jesus, you have missed the point. Because in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I watched a video very recently of a very popular conservative intellectual who is not himself a Christian, giving a speech which he entitled, Message to the Christian Churches. And this is what this conservative uh, political and cultural commentator said. He said, the Christian church is there to remind people young men included, and perhaps even first and foremost, that they have a woman to find, a garden to walk in, a family to nurture, an ark to build, a land to conquer, a ladder to heaven to build, and the utter terrible catastrophe of life to face stalwartly in truth, devoted to love and without fear. In other words, this very popular conservative intellectual was saying that the job of the Christian church was to call people to live lives of moral fortitude using the stories of the Bible. That is, as the theologians say, exactly wrong. The job of the Christian church, the job of the Apostle Paul, is to proclaim the person, Jesus Christ. This is the church's message to young men and to everybody. Jesus loved and died for an unworthy woman called the church. Jesus crushed the serpent in the garden that you and I and Adam didn't. Jesus rescues hell-bound sinners into his father's family through his death and resurrection. Jesus is the ark of safety who saves from the waters of judgment. Jesus is the ladder to heaven, the way, the truth, the life, apart from whom no one comes to the father. Jesus faced the utter terrible catastrophe of God's divine wrath and rose from the dead so that he can give eternal life to those who have earned only death, but who will trust in him. From its first pages, the message of the Bible is not to improve the morals of secular society. The message of the Bible is about the person, Jesus Christ, and how eternal life is given to sinners as a gift by him, and the gift of eternal life itself consists in knowing him. What did Jesus say in John 17, verse 3? He said, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing Jesus. True wisdom and knowledge means understanding the world in light of his preeminence. Right, Paul toils joyfully not to raise morals in society generally, although that could be a legitimate part of our, our vocations individually. That is not the job of the Christian church. That is not the job of the Apostle Paul as a minister of the church. Paul toils joyfully to proclaim God's mystery. 
And that mystery is Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's our second point this morning, God's mystery. Third and final point this morning has to do with the goal of Paul's toil, or the purpose for which Paul proclaims this mystery. And that is... The church's maturity. Point three, the church's maturity. So if you remember our one-sentence summary of the passage from two hours ago, uh, Paul toils joyfully to proclaim God's mystery, Christ, for the church's maturity. So Paul makes very clear that the goal of his toil is the growth, the faith, the health, the maturity of God's church. And we might add the conversion of those who aren't yet in God's church. Look again with me at chapter 1, verse 28. Paul writes, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that or so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Right? Paul's main goal is not to increase morality in society generally. Again, that could be a meaningful part of loving our neighbor. I'm not saying it never is, but that is not why the church is on earth. Paul's goal is to present everyone mature in Christ. Paul's goal as an agent of the church is the maturity of God's people and the conversion of those who are not yet God's people. Paul's end game is that those who don't yet know Jesus might be called to faith in him, and that those who do know Jesus might be mature in that knowledge. That's why Paul writes what he writes in Colossians. Look there at chapter 2, verse 1. That's why Paul is even telling the Colossians about his toil. Chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. Why? So that you'll feel bad for me? So that you'll think well of me? No, look at verse 2. That, or so that, their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Again, that that sentence is, is a mouthful, but Paul's main point is very clear, I think. Paul is telling the Colossians about his toil. Why? So that they'll be encouraged, encouraged by his example, encouraged by his love. So that they'll be, he says, united together in love. That his wholehearted pursuit of the gospel would move them to wholeheartedly pursue faithfulness to the Lord Jesus and so be united as they do. And so that they would grow in their knowledge of Jesus. That's what I think he means by reaching the assurance of of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. Is that they would grow in knowing Jesus. And then look there at verse 4. Immediately after Paul says, In Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There in verse 3. He says in verse 4, He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Right? You see, Paul is saying, I'm writing that in Jesus is all wisdom. And the reason I'm telling you that is because I don't want anyone to lead you away from Jesus with plausible sounding wisdom that isn't in accord with his lordship. 
right? He's aiming at the church's maturity, at their stability in the faith. We're going to see, Lord willing, next week about how Paul doesn't want the church to be formatively shaped by alternative philosophies that are not in accord with Jesus Christ. Paul says there in verse 5, he says, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Why does Paul have joy in his toil? Because the point of his toil is the maturity of the church. And he sees there that it's happening. He sees that their life together is ordered according to God's word. That their faith in the Lord Jesus is firm. So brothers and sisters, it it might be tempting to read this passage and to take away, this passage is about how unbelievably important Paul's job is. And certainly, Paul had one of the most important jobs in the whole world. Uh, But for Paul, Paul's job is not the point. The church is the point. Paul's job is a means to the end of other believers' maturity in Christ. The whole point of Paul's proclamation, the goal of his toil, is that the church the local churches in Colossae and Laodicea, that they be united in love, right? That they be growing in the knowledge of Jesus, that they be ordered according to God's word and living from firm faith in Christ, right? The maturity of the church is the point for Paul. So friend, listen, if you are a member of Christ's body, if you are a member of of the church. God is up to important things in your life. Paul thinks that what God's doing in your life is the point. If you're a believer, uh, then you, like Paul, you are called to endure a difficulty, right? Both to do hard work uh, and to endure hardship for the glory of Jesus, and so that you become like him and know him more intimately. Listen, if you're thinking, look, my, you know, I'm not in ministry, okay? Like, this is about Paul and ministry and those holy jobs and stuff. Like, I don't have one of those holy jobs. Listen, this was Paul's full-time job when he wrote Colossians. It was keeping the floor warm in the Roman jail cell, right? Paul is sitting in prison, right? It would have been so easy for Paul to mope or to doubt, and to say, like, what does me rotting in prison have to do with the good of the church and the spread of the gospel, right? My gifts are being so underutilized in this jail cell, right? I could, like, write a letter once a month through Tychicus, right? I'm, a, I'm an apostle, right? I'm a big player. I should be let out of prison to do more significant work for the kingdom of Jesus. I'm, like, the number one rated evangelist in the church right now. And yet Paul found meaning in the toil of sitting in prison because he saw his experience through the lens of his union with Jesus. And he trusted that God was at work. Right? Christian, listen. Seemingly purposeless work done in obedience to the king of kings is not purposeless work. Seemingly purposeless suffering 
done in obedience to the King of Kings is not purposeless suffering. If you are a believer, you are also, additionally, you are called to pursue the health of Christ's body, the church. Not all in the same way, but we are all called to care about and pursue one another's maturity in Christ as God gives us gifts and opportunity. As I was writing this sermon out, I almost wrote, we're called to care about and pursue the maturity of the church, even if we only do this through prayer. And I thought that was a really dumb sentence. Instead, let me say it this way. We are called to pursue one another's maturity in Christ, especially through the mighty gift and privilege of prayer to the living God. Christian, if you can pray, you can do meaningful work in God's kingdom. So Christian, what, what is the vision that captured Paul, that animated his toil? A much longer and harder and less glamorous toil than in any training montage? Christian, what is the vision that Paul holds out for us as we are called to the faithful, ordinary, difficult toil of the Christian life. It's God's mystery, Jesus Christ, Savior of the world, focal point of history, treasure trove of all wisdom and knowledge, whom to know is eternal life. And it's the maturity and the faithfulness of his people, the church in the knowledge of that Christ, all to his glory. Brothers and sisters, that's why we toil. May the Lord grant us to do this faithfully uh, in the coming week. Let me pray. Father, we praise you for the glory of your mystery, Jesus Christ, hidden for long ages and now revealed as the only sufficient Savior from sinners, for sinners from all nations. Lord, we praise you for the glory of Jesus in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. God, we thank you for including us in his body, the church. Lord, would, would this vision rule our hearts? Lord, would we be filled with gratitude for your love? Uh, would we be filled with confidence that you are with us as we toil? Lord, as you empowered Paul, would you empower us this week to toil faithfully in our ordinary Christian lives that are glorious in your sight? Would you bless us? Would you glorify your name in our midst? Would you do these things through Christ, in whose name we pray? Amen.